Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wisdom of Friends podcast. Thank Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This is a podcast where you get to learn more about your friends and community, their wisdom, their trials and tribulations, timeless insights and their secrets. Now, let's get into the show. Please welcome your host, Cal Aras. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of uh, Wisdom of Friends. And I'm your host, Cal Aras. And today I'm really excited to be introducing you to a good friend of mine. His name is Andrew Prokopis, who's a clinical psychologist based out of uh, Massachusetts. And he's had uh, amazing credentials. He's regarded as one of the top-notch uh, psychologists in the country. Uh, he has uh, graduated from Harvard and also has a doctoral degree from Antioch in University in New England and uh, majored in clinical psychology, also in human lifespan development. In this episode, we talk about, uh, you know, integrating mind, body and spirit and how to become the best version of yourself and how to, uh, how to take care of uh, limiting beliefs that might be restricting you in tapping into your full potential. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, let's welcome the one and only Andrew Prokopis. It's a good afternoon, Andrew. Welcome to another season and episode of uh, Wisdom of Friends Show. I'm really delighted and uh, glad that you took the time to be on this program and I'm really uh, looking forward to you share your wisdom from your life journey uh, with our audience. So welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. Great. And let me start off how we got introduced through a common friend, Ken Bicknell. And uh, he spoke very highly of you. And when I did some research on your background, I was just blown away by, you know, your accomplishments and your commitment to uh, service and uh and all the milestones that you've achieved uh, and continue to achieve along the way. So it's really uh, inspiring. So one of the ways we kick off our show, uh, Andrew, is by asking our guest a simple yet profound question, and that is, uh, what is your favorite quotation or philosophy that you live by, and how have you applied it to your life? (coughs) Well, um, that's an interesting question because I probably have, uh, a multitude of quotations and quotes from people uh, that uh, has has have really guided my life and that I continue to live by. I think right now it's a very simple one, um, and it has a lot to do with, and it's come out of a lot of my work with clients and people with other people. But the quote is simply is a very simple one, and it's from Gandhi. And Gandhi says that life is not a problem to be solved. It is a mystery to be lived. And for me, it is a very simple statement, yet for me, it holds one of the most profound ways of being uh, that I've ever come across at this point in my life. So that, that is the quote right now for me. No, that is really uh, fantastic. And, and you know, like reviewing your background and the kind of work you do, I think it's very similar to uh, the uh, the quotation that you just uh, mentioned. It's like helping people discover themselves and then so that they can live the mystery of life. And, you know, it reminds me of that story about Michelangelo and David when uh, Michelangelo was asked, you know, how did he come 
to uh, sculpt yeah. this beautiful piece of marble and David. And he said, all I did was took away and chip away uh, what was not David. And, you know, and, and so I think uh, I, your work reflects yeah. that in a lot of different ways. And uh, you help people on so many different levels, uh, mind, body, soul, spirit. And I want to get into that as we continue our conversation. But what I'm curious about, Andrew, is uh, uh what did your parents do and how did that shape your life? In other words, uh, where did you grow up and how would you describe your childhood? Well, um, that's, a very, that's a good question because my childhood and where my parents came from and my heritage has um, always played a, a significant role in my life um, in very profound ways. So um, my mother um, was a Serbian. Uh, she was the 13th child of her, of her mother and father, and um, they were immigrants from Yugoslavia, uh, from around Dubovnik. And um, <clears throat> my father, and um, they settled, uh, my mother's family settled in Hammond, Indiana. I know very little of the history before that, just bits and pieces of them. My father was Greek. And his family came uh, from Greece in about 1907, 1910, um, and they landed at Ellis Island and they migrated up to Montreal. And he was born, actually, <coughs> shortly after they came to America in Montreal. And um, at some point, uh, when he was about 10 years old, uh, they moved down to a town that was relatively a new town then. It was called Gary, Indiana. And Gary, Indiana was a, um, a mill town that was developed by Albert H. Gary um, for, for the mills, steel mills there, right on the bottom shores of Lake Michigan. And uh, that's where they grew up. And um, my mother and father, uh, my father went to one high school. My mother went to Horace Mann High School, which is the same high school that all my siblings went to and I went to. And um, they met there and uh, got married and had <coughs> five children. Actually, they had six. One died. And they had five children. And um, at some point after the first two, they decided to leave Gary and um go west because there's a big land deal down in Arizona where you could buy land cheap. So they went down to Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona, and there I was born in Phoenix, Arizona. The land deal turned out to be um, a scam. They moved to uh, San Bernardino, California, where my two other sisters was born, and then they came back to Gary. And uh, when I was about, I think I was about seven or eight years old. And uh, that went to grew up there up until about 10 years old. And then they moved to Chicago because both of my parents commuted to Chicago, which was 30 miles from Gary. And then um, uh, three years later, my mother died of breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And I was returned back to Gary, Indiana, to be raised by my yaya, my Greek grandmother. The thing that's significant for me is Gary, Indiana is referred to as a melting pot. And really, there, it, everyone came to Gary specifically to work in the mills or to establish 
businesses around to support the families that worked in the mills. And everybody lived according to their ethnicity in their own sections of town. There was a section where the Jews lived, where the Poles lived, where the Serbs lived, the Greeks lived, the blacks lived, the Mexicans lived, the Puerto Ricans lived. They all lived in their own section. And they came together in the various uptown, downtown areas of town. But they pretty much lived in their own section. And at the center was their own church or their own synagogue or whatever. So I grew up in a melting pot. I grew up in a town that was working class. My family was working class, poor to working class at times, depending on uh, what the financial status of things were. But that... That's big. That's just a brief, no, brief history there. No, that's great, and thanks for sharing. So, sounds like uh, you've had an early exposure to diversity and inclusion yeah. at a very early age. And uh, so, what I'm curious about is, uh, you know, looking at your uh, qualifications and your career path, you went to Leslie University in Cambridge uh, to study counseling. To get, that's where you got your bachelor's, and then from that point on, you went on to do your. Uh, a master's at Harvard uh, in human lifespan development, and then you pursued your doctorate, and again in clinical psychology. So, one of the one of the questions we often get uh, from our listeners is, you know, how do we find a calling? How do we really uh, find our passion? And it seems like you did. You were pre- pretty crystal clear uh, in the choices, the career choices you've made so far early on. Uh, in clinical psychology or related fields. So what would you say, uh, was there something uh, that you knew you always wanted to do, or how did that uh, journey unfold for you? Well, I'm going to um, <laughs> blow that away just a little bit. The, 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 what seems to look like that I knew from early on and that I started early on to move in the direction of clinical psychology um, actually, when I got out of high school, I went to the Chicago Art Institute because I was going to go into theater. And prior to that, I was a semi, in later end of high school and everything, I was a semi-professional dancer. <coughs> and so theater was really the direction that I was going into. But things started to change um, around 1965 for me because there was a lot of political unrest and the 60s came up and the civil rights movement started happening and um, I started working in civil rights um, toward the end of my high school years and um, at that time there was a, uh, the, the uh, it was a man a black man that was running for mayor uh, Richard G. Hatcher, and I worked on his campaign and got very involved in it, um, experienced a lot of, uh, there was a lot of turmoil at that time around the civil rights, particularly in Gary, and so I was kicked, spat on, slugged, done everything, and chased once one evening by the Ku Klux Klan, and um, the... Uh, interesting thing is that Mayor Hatcher became the mayor of Gary, Indiana. He won. He was the first black mayor ever elected in the United States. Mm. Um, 
So that was a very rough time. The Ku Klux Klan headquarters in the north at that time was South Bend, Indiana. So it was a pre- Indiana was a very difficult place to live, particularly Gary at that time. There's a lot of unrest. And after that, there was a lot of racial trouble that started happening. And I also got involved in the anti-Vietnam War movement. Um, so at that time, that was all going on. And um, just to make a big go back again in terms of uh, in terms of my path or finding my way and everything, the significant thing there was a number of things that happened, and there's a lot of little stories there. But the the significant thing that happened in my life was when I was 13 years old, living in Chicago. We had moved there a few years before because my mother worked at. Um, a hospital there and my father was a chef at a restaurant in Chicago and my mother um, got breast cancer and from about 10 years old to about 13 I watched her slowly die of breast cancer and she died when I had just turned 13 and that experience uh, changed my life forever really in a very very, very profound way. It really, um, I remember coming home from school, my, my sister and I coming home from school. <clears throat> my mother had gone back into the hospital for about the third time. And we came home and came upstairs and my yaya, my Greek aunt, and my Greek yaya, my Greek grandmother were in the living room. And they lived in Gary and my father was sitting there so I knew right away that something had happened. And my sister went over to my father, <clears throat> sat in his lap, and I went over and sat close to my yaya because I was very close to my Greek grandmother. And I heard my father say something to my sister, and I heard my sister crying. And I knew that my mother had died. And I got up and went into the bathroom. And then shortly later, I came back out. My sister was gone, and I went running outside looking for her. And as I went down the stairs, we lived in a three-story apartment building, and I came out on the street. I had, um, I suddenly felt like I had come into a diff- totally different reality. I looked around me, and I, everything looked strange or seemed odd to me or something it was, um, I saw all my friends were coming home from school and parents were coming home from work, etc. But something had changed forever for me at that point. And um, I think at that point in my, I don't think, I know at that point in my life that I was left with a very profound sense. I didn't have the language, I didn't have the knowledge or the understanding to put it into words. But I knew at that time that um, I needed to understand, and this sounds so cliche, but it was very profound. I needed to understand what it was all about. Because everything that I had known about life previous to that was changed forever and was gone. And I had no clue because no one had prepared me for that experience and for that great loss. I was very close to my mother. And that really was the seed from that point on. 
And I think that um, I got into theater and everything like that because it was um, it was easy, etc. But still, there was a profound searching and wanting to know what was going on, which also got me involved in social justice, you know, from late high school on, etc. And it wasn't until later that I finally came to um, the whole idea of, after reading a lot of philosophy, of reading a lot and everything, the curiosity that took me to understand what life was about and to understand what people were about and what was going on, really. And that was what led me into psychology, actually. So just give a sense that I did not really know in the beginning. No, that's... um Thank you for sharing. So that's really uh, sounds like a strategic inflection point in your life, in your career. A uh, yes. couple of events that happened that shaped your choices uh, from that point on, your mother's uh, passing away moment. And then also, uh, uh, you know, at that point, you had to question yourself, what is this all about? Because you weren't prepared or weren't. Uh, and nobody, I don't know if anybody gets prepared for uh a loss yeah. of that magnitude, but I think, uh, you know, uh, for you, it was a profound moment, and that set the journey in uh, counseling and uh, psychology there. So uh, I want to go take a step back and ask you about uh, the civil rights movement and the campaigning you did for the first black mayor and all the hardships uh, you, pr- you faced during the campaigning. But what was that moment like when he finally won and you having been part of that uh, campaign and election and process like you know for so long and having uh, had to withstand all kinds of uh, uh, challenges along the way but finally uh, you saw that to fruition that the final year candidate that you were aiming for finally won so what was that moment like for you personally and and what did that do for the community at that time well I think um, well uh, we didn't have any idea of how, what direction everything was going to go in. But at that very moment, it sort of, I think, um, you know, in the 60s, there was a, there's a, was a very kind of romanticism going on, too, about it uh, for some of us. And, and what it did was it made us feel completely elated. That and that we had won, that we had made some change, that we had made something happen, and we had changed uh, the world in some way. It felt like to us, and that it felt like very positively that everything from that moment on, uh, for those of us that were celebrating um, Mayor Hatcher's victory, every from that moment on, that it was going to be different, and things were going to change forever. And it was the same with the those '60s movement. We felt that. Things were going to change. It was very, you know, uh, coming out of the 50s into the 60s was a very dramatic difference. And um, those of us that were there know it, but it's very difficult to describe. But it, it, felt, um, it felt great. It felt great that he had won. No, that's so, uh, so great. And then, uh, you know, we've had uh, amazing folks uh, on the show. Uh, and then, you know, they've had... Uh, They've given their own perspectives on what the 60s uh, looked like for yeah. them. And wow. I know we've had musicians and, you know, uh, the, the Beatles impact and the euphoria at that time on uh, the United States and the world. And then, uh, you know, of course, the political climate and also the hippie movement of spirituality and uh, transcendental meditation and all of that. And it's just, uh, 
you know, it's, it was definitely a unique time uh, in our history, uh, for sure. So I want to take a step back to uh, the Art Institute of Chicago, where you studied the arts and theater and dancing. And you mentioned that you were dancing. Was there any particular kind of dancing that you practiced or uh, performances-wise? or? Yes, I was... Um I had been trained in ballet, but my but it was just the training. I never well, actually, I did um, perform some ballet here and there when I was younger. Um, but the dance at the same time after the um, Chicago Art Institute, I I went into Indiana University at the Northwest Campus in Gary. I signed up there, and I was part of their dance company. <clears throat> and the dance we did there was very. Um, we had a guy, Garrett Cope, who was the instructor and the choreographer, and he was from New York City. And so he was very much into Martha Graham and people like that. And so very highly interpretive modern dance was really what we were doing and what our performances were. I was also doing a lot of musical comedy because that's where I would get paid. Um, doing the modern dance and interpretive dance, you didn't get paid. That was really... Uh, it was because of a passion that you had, not necessarily that anyone was going to pay you for, to do that. But most of what I loved was interpretive dance and um, uh, modern dance, etc. And I did some choreography, too, but uh, mostly the choreography that I did was for uh, musical comedies in Indiana and Michigan and Chicago. Oh, that's so great. And then... Uh so uh, are you still a passionate follower of modern dancing? Do you keep up with uh, what's going on in the, today's day and age? or A little bit here and there as much as I can, yes. I find myself always drifting in that direction, <clears throat> curious about and seeing what's happening with some groups and things like that, yeah. No, great. Excellent. So moving on to the next question. And so, so really coming back to you, uh, what would your advice be to people who are listening to this and are looking to find their own calling, their own passion? Uh, you uh, know, what would be a good way to go about uh, identifying, you know, what approach to take in life? Uh, what would you say to that? Well, uh, God, that is a, a huge question. In fact, that's exactly kind of what I work with, with clients and for the most part. And, um, you know, I think what it is, is the only thing that really came to mind and always comes to mind, and there's a whole process that you have to get involved with it, is to, my advice is to listen just as much as you can to very much get to a place uh, with yourself and within yourself where you can listen to the most quiet voices, the most quiet stirrings inside of you, and um, pay attention, is what I would say. No, I like that. It's really, uh, and I think part of it is also experimentation, I think, because, you know, unless you're exposed to different disciplines and have tried different things, you really don't yeah. know what your strengths are or what you're good at. And then, uh, you know, after accumulated so many experiences, I think then tapping into the inner wisdom, if you will, to... Uh, find out what it is uh, can really help. Uh, so, and I want to kind of get into the perspective, uh, your approach to uh, the mind, body, soul, uh, spirit that you uh, coach and help people with. Uh, yeah. So, but before we get into that, my another question for you is, uh, 
So you did your, uh, you know, qualifications and you acquired all your uh, credentials from some of the top-notch universities there. Yeah. So what, when you look back at your career, was there a significant moment or a success moment that altered the trajectory of your career, if you will, like that? Okay, this is, this is something I could do for the rest of my life, or that just took you to a whole other level in terms of, uh, you know, your successes with your career? Um, let me see. Um, I think that, uh, you know, in the beginning when I was finishing up my bachelor's at Lesley University in Cambridge, I was just kind of getting the skills and getting what I needed to finish the bachelor's, etc. And then, um, then I went to, um, I, I applied to Harvard, um, and got in there and, um, I'm not sure why I did that, but there was something pulling me there. I was very much into Carol Gilligan at that time, who was a professor there, and Bob Keegan and um, uh, a few other people that were there, Kohlberg, etc., because they talked a lot about moral development. And I was kind of curious about that, about doing the right thing, etc., and um, it just seemed like it was a very high level of perspective and I got into learning about human development and I got really curious about that um, the whole notion of human development and how we begin to develop more and more in terms of cognitively etc um, and so I just became very curious about what it was like to be a human being to really kind of ground in that um, I think that um, It's very hard to say when it's sort of, um, I think that uh, the time that happened the most for me, you know, it really didn't cut, it was was sort of all working in a trajectory because alongside of that was my spiritual path. Um, So alongside of my professional work, working with um, people psychologically, along and developmentally, Alongside of that was my own spiritual path. And um, at one point, it was, and this wasn't until the early part of my doctoral degree, that um, I became aware that um, my spiritual path, uh, which I got into actually was in 1969, 70, and um, the beginning parts of it anyway, but what I got into is the early part of my doctoral degree was that my spiritual path was really helping and changing me a great deal. And then it hit me at one point when I was working with the client that there was, I wouldn't say a conflict, but there was a tension that was going on. There was the psychology and there was the spirituality. And... Um, some of what I was learning was not really interested in spirituality or not bringing that in. And so what I realized that if this is helping me uh, in a significant way, and my goal in my life is about helping other people, they needed to come together. So from that point on, my work was about what I decided to do was that There wasn't really any place that I could go to 
that would help me to understand how to bring spirituality and psychology together. I realized I needed to know that and do that internally for myself. So I began to work and introduce and bringing those things in and got very curious with my clients about what was going on in their lives and what was happening and how does spirituality and psychology come together. And so I think that that was the most significant. That was the, actually probably the significant point in my life and that's been on that trajectory ever since of how to bring the whole notion of spirituality and psychology together. So that's that's such a great, a great perfect segue into um <clears throat> into my next question and that is uh, you know one of the challenges today uh, uh, I think in, in, instead of a challenge let's call it an opportunity because linguistically <laughs> it definitely makes a big uh, big makes a big uh, difference how you look at it uh so one of the opportunities we have today, the same which you faced back then, is psychology and spirituality. Uh, those were two separate entities, and you figured out a way to bridge those together. And I think there is a significant uh, similar opportunity today that is uh, present in businesses. You know, when you go to like multinational corporations or organizations, they're very hesitant to bring anything to do with spirituality or with uh, hardcore business practices. So what were some of the lessons or best practices did you gain uh, in your quest to merge those two together between psychology and spirituality? Is there any findings or anything that you could share perhaps? Um, well, <laughs> I think that um, obviously all the uh, research <clears throat> that's going on presently about bringing meditation in and the power of meditation and the significant role that meditation plays in our, our health, psychological health. I think everything that's going on in neuroscience around that, and there's a lot that's going on there. And I think that um, bringing that in um, would be very helpful uh, across the board and is very it's very much what's going on right now in psychology um, and the whole piece around uh, mindfulness and bringing in mindfulness and the research around mindfulness and the the challenge that came for me um, was how to bring that into everyday life into people's everyday life and really what a lot of the work is about, and it's very interesting, my work with clients, it's very interesting that something so simplistic is this, but it's really um, coming to the point of really just, uh, well, there's a number of things here, but really pausing. There's about three different pieces to this whole thing, so it's a little, let me see if I can bring it together. But what I work on with clients is what I call the pause. And the pause is about being able to, in the midst of your life, uh, at any given moment, to just simply stop, if you can, and just pause and listen to what is going on. Listen to what your mind is saying. Listen to what your feelings are, what's going on with your feelings. Listen to and take the pause and watch and see what you're doing and see where where that what that is all about so 
the so that's a key piece that I work, and that's more on the end of uh, bringing in the mindfulness piece. Um, the other significant piece is that um, it's the body, mind, spirit piece. But so there is the spiritual piece, which for me is the holding of the spirit, of the connection to the source. The other piece is the mind, and the mind um, is a very significant piece here, and it is really working on helping clients get clearer and clearer about what is going on in their mind. From my perspective, my experience is in order to get to that place where you can pause and begin to move in the direction of listening for the source within you, for the wisdom within you, and for the peace and the curiosity within you. Um, there are parts of us that get in the way of that. There are parts of us that want us to do this or want us to do that. or And they are primarily based on, these parts are primarily based on the ones that we work in in therapy, are primarily based on some fear or some concern and something that we've developed and learned over, um, over our lifetime. And um, so the idea, so another piece of it is, and it's generated by the mind. <clears throat> the mind is um, really there to um, help us to figure out what's going on in the environment and to determine whether we're safe, the essential pieces of the mind, like the amygdala, et cetera. And um, like uh, my, my teacher says that uh, the mind will give you a thousand reasons why you should do something. And then when you do it, it'll give you a thousand reasons why you shouldn't have done it. And so the mind is very good at holding a lot of information and a lot of concerns and a lot of fears. And the work that I do is to help people to get to the place where they come to understand that about themselves, to understand their mind better, the nature of their mind, what its concerns and fears are, and how it gets in the way of being connected to the source within us that will help us to better understand what direction that we need to go in. The mind cannot make decisions. It can give you the information. It can give you everything about it. But ultimately, you need to make your own decision about what direction to go in. And the way to do that is to list, to get to a place where you can listen. And so I work a lot with clients about beginning to integrate and bring that more into their life. Um, and really to kind of like take time off and do that. There's a, fam there's a really well-known Mary Oliver poem um, that I like to quote sometimes, but uh, it, let me just say it here. It's very fast, if that's okay. Sure, yeah. Go for yeah. it. She says, today I'm flying low and I'm not saying a word. I'm letting all the voodoos of amb ambition sleep. The world goes on as it must. The bees in the garden rustling a little. The fish leaping the gnats getting eaten, and so forth. But I'm taking the day off, quiet as a feather. I hardly move, though really I'm traveling a terrific distance. Stillness 
one of the doors into the temple. And it may sound or seem that it's easy thing to do to get us to sit to a place where we can actually really be in that pause and in that stillness. But it's amazing how much work it takes to work with the mind to make to create a space between you and your mind so that you can get to a place where you can be quiet and still with yourself and listen for a moment. That's, That's so beautiful. Really beautiful. Um, yeah. So, you know, it reminds me of the quotation by Blaise Pascal. I believe it goes something like all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And uh, so, no, that's that's really uh, profound there. So let me just recap. So the three aspects that you mentioned is uh, really mindfulness, which is being a witness, if you will, or be taking the pause between what's going on in your uh, environment and versus, you know, being having the choice to respond and not not combining your stimulus and response and like figure out, figuring out a way to kind of like put a pause in between. So you are uh, giving yourself the best opportunity to uh, make a powerful choice. Uh, right. Secondly, I'm also hearing you say is like the spiritual connection, which is uh, connecting to the source. And I want to get into that a little bit as we uh, go further along. And then finally, the mind, which is for me, is really about psychology. It's like the social conditioning and, you know, the environmental factors and social economic statuses and everything, the beliefs, if you will, that gets instilled in us or the indoctrination of beliefs that uh, happens uh, unconsciously. So that you think is the cause of the fear uh, and concerns that gets in the way of us connecting to the source so that, uh, you know, we, so that we could tap into the wisdom if we can get outside, get out, out yes. of our own way, right? Yes, because early on in childhood, um, there is one guy, one uh, expert talks about the amygdala is the smoke alarm and the fire alarm. And early on in childhood, it begins to malfunction because it begins to react to in things in the environment as if um, they're life-threatening. And if we have adults in our life that help us to see clearly and calm us down and work with those and see that we can manage those, things go well. If we don't, they get embedded and they get programmed in. And so later on in life, it keeps getting reinforced. And later on in life, if there's anything in the environment consciously or unconsciously, that smells or looks or walks or talks like anything that happened back then in any remote way, the alarm goes off and we have a reaction. And so um, every psychological uh, theory talks about this kind of thing in one way or the other. And they talk about what ends up developing are parts of us. Jung calls it complexes or what he calls uh, splinter personalities. Esagioli and psychosynthesis calls it subpersonalities. Um, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy calls it schema. Freud called it defense mechanisms. Internal family systems calls them protectors. 
These are parts of us that are programmed in that react to this environment in some way that that wants to protect us and and it tries to make sense of the environment based on the past. And so for me, when I work with clients, it's like if I have someone who's severely depressed, it's depression is focused on the past. If I work with somebody who's anxiety, anxiety is focused on the future. Anxiety is about the need to control the unknown in the future. And everything, and what, so one is being pulled into the past, depression. One is being pulled into the unknown future, which is anxiety. So what is the solution? What's left is the present. To be completely present, to be focused in the present. And it's working on the clients to work with the client to get to a place where just be present for a moment. And if I'm working with a group, if I'm working with a group, and sometimes in corporations I go, is, is just to develop the skills for everyone to get to a place to just relax, rest in the present, and to speak to that, exactly, that kind of thing, basically. That's you know, what working with the mind is. No, I like that. And it's as our uh, St. Kirpal Singh Maharaj used to say, uh, you know, it's for, learn from the past or so forget the past live in the present moment and the future will take care of itself. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's so profound there. So, uh, so I have a question follow up to this. So let me ask you this. Do you think based on your research and, and clinical psychology uh, over the years and some of the recent findings of neuroscience that you mentioned, is it possible to uh, do, do, do one have to deal with some of these uh fears and concerns and kind of like reactivate those and try to uh, make make a rational sense of those so that we don't kind of go into the flight or fight yeah. amygdala approach or do you think there's a way to just transcend all of that and kind of like speed through some of that into a whole nother plane of consciousness yeah. or a level of awareness that you don't have to deal with that anymore it's like you know like in the yogic philosophy you know there as we know uh, there are many approaches to yoga. One is like that goes to the lower chakras and tries to bring the spiritual uh, sound current or if you want to call it uh, the chi or the Tao or whatever that is that to the crown chakra. Or can you start from the crown chakra and uh, start going all the way to a whole nother level? Are there any smarter approaches have you come across in your research? Well, I'm going to... Um so, you know, since all this mindfulness and meditation and yoga has come into human development and, and self-help and that kind of thing, there's been a few things that have developed. One is um, notions of like there's the pre-trans fallacy, that we can actually convince ourselves that we have transcended something. And in fact, we have not, that we have, that we have a part that, that the transcending is becoming more of a defense than an actual experience. And um, the, there was another one, I can't think of it right now, of notion, but um, it, uh, you have to be very, very careful of that because we can develop defense mechanisms that block out certain things going on in order to live a life as if we have transcended. So my answer to your question is based on my experience is that to come from a higher state and work with things in life 
and all these reactions that pop up and everything, you need to have um, a teacher who is has reached that goal and who is coming from that place. Because there are many times that I've gone to my spiritual teacher um, thinking that I had come from and I had reached a certain place and he would just look at me and smile and and say something and tell him, let me know that I was not quite where I thought I was. And so I think it is very possible to do that. And I think that just like in everything else, uh, that to reach that transcendence and to work, focus more on transcending those things, you need to have somebody who is your teacher, who's going to be a guide, who's going to be able to look at you and hear you and say, um, uh, how about going over here a little bit? Or what about this or what about that kind of thing? So I think you, you, you need a teacher. And that's the tradition of those paths for, for hundreds of years, for thousands of years, is that you go to seek somebody who is in that place and you sit with them and they will guide you along the way because they know, they can see no, absolutely, absolutely. And, and then that's been a tradition, not just in the East, but uh, yeah. even in the West. I mean, the, being an apprentice to uh, some of the greatest artists and uh, musicians yeah. and uh, things of that nature, that you actually find that uh, guru or find that master, the true you master. Know, even, in the, even in the Desert Fathers and the old, old Orthodox tradition in Christianity, as well as in the Judaic tradition, you have a teacher. Who has, who has gone that path and who has reached that place. And so, so it's been there for a long time, and it will continue to be there, I think. No, that is so great. And, uh, you know, most recently, Andrew, uh, well, let me say, like, for the last year and a half or two, uh, I've been kind of, like, doing a deep dive into positive psychology. And, uh, into and, what? Uh, in, into positive psychology. Yes. And uh, one of the things that I've noticed that, uh, you know, it's like, I mean, it's fascinating to me that uh, the positive psychology has taken off big time lately because yeah. now the study is done on the outlier rather than the average of, uh, you know, any particular research that one is doing. And for instance, what they're finding out about happiness in general is that, yeah. you know, it's about, uh, you know, your body follows the mind and the mind follows the body in a lot of ways. For example, your body is the natural pharmacy for happiness chemicals like the dopamine, serotonin, and the endorphins. And uh, you can actually trigger and activate those chemicals at will on cue, on demand. Uh, and uh, and part of that research has uh, taken its, uh, is making its way into corporations where workforce engagement and employee engagement is really a big challenge out there where people are not really satisfied with their work and not satisfied you know, there's a latest Gallup study, I believe, that said, like, you know, 70% of the people were disengaged with their jobs. Yeah, and yeah. and uh, and I know you are a big proponent of uh, uh, somatic approaches uh, where, uh, you know, having dance as a movement and having body move yes. in certain ways that can trigger uh, certain chemicals in your body or rather get rid of some of these... Uh, the stresses that we may be carrying on, uh, carrying around with us, like the external uh, expression of our unconscious in our body, right? So could you speak to that a little bit? Well, um, 
That is, uh, okay, <laughs> there's a lot here, so it's going to be hard to, but what, what happens, the way that I understand it, and it really goes back to being in the present, because the anxiety and the fears come from around the past and the future. So it really begins with working with people to begin to focus on the present. And uh, the interesting thing, and this is working with the body, the interesting thing is what helps us to be in the present? What helps us to be in the present is the five senses, the sense of sight, touch, hearing, smell, and taste. So part of it is working with the clients to begin to just allow themselves, either with their eyes open or their eyes closed, to begin to become aware of what it feels like to be here right now. So part of it is the way that I, I usually go for the auditory, but which is to just listen to the sounds around you without trying to interpret them, <clears throat> without trying to judge them or any way. Just notice if you're interpreting or trying to judge them. Just notice that. But bring your attention back to just the sounds around you or look around the room. And let your eyes go wherever they want to go. And see and watch and listen to them go in the direction usually of what sounds good, what sounds nice, or what sounds really curious, or what looks good. And just to begin to bring yourself totally back into the present. And to begin to feel like, what does it feel like to be sitting in the chair? To feel your body touching the chair your back touching the chair, your buttocks touching the chair, your feet touching the ground maybe. The sense of touch, just to be there, just to come back to the present. Because where you want to go with this is what my spiritual teacher refers to the outward expression of the soul, which is your attention. The most powerful thing you have is your attention. That's why the mind, the first thing your mind wants to do is to rob you of your attention. <clears throat> it wants to direct you where it wants to go. And usually out of some fear or some, some anxiety or something like that or some external thing. So what you want to do is just what you're beginning to do with the five senses is beginning to direct your attention. You're pulling your attention back to yourself. And then to begin from that point <clears throat> to begin to go internally. And to begin to become aware of what it is that you are curious about. What it is, maybe even in your job or whatever, is there anything curious about or anything that you're wanting to know or anything that, um, uh, anything that uh, evokes some type of happiness or joy for you? And just to begin to pay attention to that, because once you start doing that, you begin to realign yourself into what it is, into, realign yourself with the, the outward expression of your soul, what you want, what makes you happy. And then you start getting oriented and aligned again because the fears and the negativity that we have disorients us. It throws us off. It puts us over here, puts us over there, it shuts this down, it shuts that down. And what you want to do is to get focused and back to your attention again. No, that is that is really awesome, really awesome. I had an opportunity actually uh, last year to uh, 
visit Lennox at the Kripalu uh, Yoga Center over there, and I had an opportunity to do something called forest bathing, uh, yes. where you actually just walk into the forest and listen to the birds chirping. And that was that was like my very first experience having done that actually, and I was just blown away by what what the attention gets focused on and how can you bring it back to yep. nature and 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 it's it's really amazing that's very interesting because one of my teachers a long time ago was a psychologist who was an apache she was an apache medicine woman as well and she um the way she would work with her clients and i and i started doing this too is she would tell her clients and i've turned around a little bit too when clients say to me something troubling or disturbing I would say, I would do with some of the clients, not all of them, but just try this out. Well, what I want you to do is go somewhere, go into the forest, go into the woods somewhere, and find a tree that you're pulled to. And I want you to go and sit down by the tree and take your shoes and socks off and put your feet at the base of the tree and tell the tree all the stuff that's bothering you and see what the tree tells you. And it's very, very powerful because that tree has probably been there a long time in most cases. And it is very still and it is constant. And so that experience that you have of being, of being is very powerful. And it comes, that's what the Native Americans used to do, according to this teacher of mine. No, that's great. Definitely. I mean, I, I certainly am going to try that on as uh, next time I'm in the woods. Um, so this is a perfect segue into... Uh, some other questions I have for you, like okay. uh, one of them is, uh, you know, what are your, uh, who are your mentors growing up and uh, whom did you look up to or wanted to emulate or anybody that you want to give a shout out to that's made a big difference uh, in your life, in your career? Well, if you're going to go back there, you're going back to a different period in my life. And um, so these are, you know, I, when I was young, I, um, uh, when I was 12 years old, I was watching TV and Joan Baez was on and she was playing guitar and singing. And so the people and my mother ended up buying me a guitar from, for Christmas and everything because she thought I was into it. But the people for me and later on, I read Gandhi's autobiography and I read Paramahansa Yogananda's book. And I read D.T. Suzuki's book. These are the things, I, you know, it was weird, I guess, as a kid back then in Gary, Indiana, reading this stuff. But it's those people. It's people like, um, I'm going to have to say, it's people like Joan Baez. It's people like Gandhi, Ramahansa Yogananda. Um, people like that. Are the, and, and then later on, I, you know, um, I saw Martin Luther King. And... Um, when I was in his presence, I couldn't believe it. I thought, I thought in my mind, is this person human? This person is, the energy was so incredible around this person that um, it was pretty amazing to me. So Martin Luther King would be one of the people as well. Those people are the ones that really, um, you know, having had lost my mother and having that kind of thing come into my life saved me, I think, and really pulled me in a very positive direction. I remember once um, 
I went to Coney Island and I was leaving New York City. This was when I was like 21 or 22 or something. And I went and I had with, with a friend and it was early morning and we went to have our fortune told. And the woman, the young woman told our fortunes and I was walking away and this old woman came out behind um, the thing and she called me over and I went over with my friend and she told me, tell me your friend to go away. And so I asked my friend to go away, and he, she said, I have one thing to tell you. She said, you will only succeed with God. And mm. that was, she turned around and walked away. And it was ever since then that it really was a seed that was planted. And in those early years, I pursued a lot of religion and spirituality. And, um, and even the teachings and writings of Christ and all those people. And then when I met my spiritual teacher and everything, those are the people that spark life into me and uh, that I hold great, great in my heart and mind. No, that's so great. Uh, well, the next question for you is, uh, I'm sure you've read so many books, as you mentioned. Uh, what books have you gifted or reread over the years? Any recommendations you have for the audience? Um, oh, God. Um, <laughs> um, Gandhi's autobiography, I read often. Um, looked at um, every once in a while. Um, let's see. Uh, I can't think. Um, that's funny. I can't think of any others. Uh, that's really one of them. Um, right now, it's funny. I'm sorry. I can't think of anything. No, that's all right. And then, you know, we could always add it to the show notes later on. So, uh, so one other question uh, before we uh, get into our next uh, section here, and that is, Having experienced the ebb and, uh, you know, ebb and flow of life, and yeah, and having experienced all the successes and uh, you know all the challenges along the way, when you what's your at this point in life, what would you say is your definition of a successful life or a good life or a happy life? Okay, <laughs> um, one thing, and Socrates said it. And Master Kripal said it, if you can get to the place where you know yourself and you really get to that place where, because you, you keep getting to places, oh yeah, I know myself. But then you learn something and you find, you can get to this place where you can say, and it's almost like you can't even say it, that you have gotten to the place where you know yourself. That is the thing that I would say would give you success in your life and a feeling of success and accomplishment and imper and the peace is to come to know yourself. Oh, I like that. That's really deep and profound. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we're going to switch gears here, Andrew, and we're going right. to get into the rapid fire round. And these are just a bunch of random questions I'm going to ask you. So the, my first question to you is, are you ready? All right. Okay. I am. <laughs> All right, so the first question is, whose brain would you like to pick? Whose brain would I like to pick? Um, let's see. I would like, I keep doing this going back. Um, I'm going to leave my spiritual teachers out. But <laughs> I would like to pick Einstein's brain, and I would like to pick Gandhi's brain. But they're gone, so that would be hard to do. <laughs> All right, fair enough. And then uh, the next question is, if you could have been successful in another profession, which would you choose? Um, a teacher. Hmm. The next question for you is, do you believe in magic? 
Uh, I'm going to answer that the way Jung answered a similar question. No, I don't believe in magic. I know that there is magic. (laughs) Nice. And then uh, if you could have witnessed one event in history, what would that be? Wow. Um, I would have really liked to have witnessed Gandhi mm. and be with him. And then uh, what, are, what are five things that you, according to you, are the most important in life? Well, I think I said the one thing is uh, to come to know yourself. Um, to, to the five things or like five perspectives? Places it could be, could be uh, take, it, take it away, I mean, in any, any direction you want to. Okay. So the five things that are the most important in life, one is love. Um, the other is love slash compassion. The other is um, peace. The other is um, truth. Uh, the other would be meditation and the other would be uh, let's see I think the other would be generosity mm. I like that that's really uh, awesome and then uh, the next one is what was the best piece of advice you have received um Tons of the best piece of advice was when I went to Sanchi. I was told by other satsangis that I shouldn't be doing counseling or working psychology, and that that because that's not on the spiritual path. And I went to Sanchi and I told him that I was going to drop out of the do- my doctoral program because I come to understand that psychology is not the way to go because it's just working with the mind. And he looked at me very sternly and he said, "You should not do that." He said that. If you, uh, he says, your work is as important as your meditation. And he said, I have one question for you. And I said, what? And he said, are you helping people? And And I said, yes, I think so. And he said, then you should never stop what you're doing. Oh, that's beautiful. Beautiful. So, uh, well, the next question is kind of redundant, but I'm going to ask you anyway. If you could ask God one question, what would it be? Um. <laughs> <laughs> you got that, huh? <laughs> um, I think the one question, I don't know. Um, I don't know if I would, I, I guess that it would be... Um, It's funny, but there's nothing that comes to mind if I ask God one question. That's all right. No worries. And then one final question within the rapid fire on, and that is, uh, let's say you could go back to your young self. Yes. uh, The young Andrew who stepped outside on that street uh, when you asked yourself that question, what is it all about? And so if you could go back in time and talk to that young self, what advice would you give him? Ah, the advice that I would give him is 
given what he was going through and everything, what I would say is trust. Have complete trust. Have complete trust in yourself and have complete trust that you are connected to the source and that no matter what happens, you will have help and guidance. Wow. That's awesome. So that uh, finishes our rapid fire round. And I've got just final three questions for you. And that is yeah. the first one being, what is your current uh, personal or business passion project that you're working on? And uh, what are you looking forward to in the next six months to a year? Um, my passion and project right now is I'm actually working on three different books. <laughs> and my hope is that the one that's more about the components of my work with people um, gets done. It's almost done, and I'm going to have an editor looking at it soon and everything to that. And the other, that the second book that I really will be able to um, have the uh, strength to finish that one. Okay, great. And then uh, as, as that comes closer to uh, publish, pub, publication, just let us know, and we'll include it in our show notes as well. And uh, right. and including all the recommendations you've done about books and, of course, your social media links as well. So okay. the next question is, what are three things you are grateful for in life? Uh, I'm very, very grateful that I, was, that I came to a spiritual path and that I had the teachers that I had. Um, I am very, very grateful for the love and the care uh, that I had when I was young, and I'm very, very grateful for my partner in my life right now, my wife, Diane. Oh, that's great. So I want to take a moment here uh, to acknowledge you, Andrew, for a few things. Uh, one being that, you know, right from, as you shared your story, one thing that became absolutely uh, crystal clear is just your sense of contribution and service to humanity the fact that you get drawn to uh, folks you mentioned like Gandhi and Dr. King, uh, who've dedicated their lives for a cause bigger than themselves. I mean, that, in fact, uh, tells me the kind of uh, passion you have for social service, which is also evident in your, uh, you know, in your campaigning for uh, Mayor Hatcher and then going through all the trials and tribulations uh, for that victory and then continuing to help people with the mind, body and soul uh, approach. And while continuing your spiritual practice, which is really, uh, really remarkable and very inspiring. So thank you for doing what you're doing in the sure. world and helping people out there. So really appreciate it. It's all his will. Great. And uh, one final question, uh, Andrew, and this is how we wrap up all our interviews. And that is, why do you think people should listen to the wisdom of friends? I think that people should listen to the wisdom of friends because you are talking to people to learn about their lives, what's significant and important in their lives. And I think that what it does, what impressed me and what I really liked about it was that it expands. It expands greatly and opens up greatly that power that we have to help each other. And as soon as you hear what some people are going through and everything, you feel like you're a part of a greater community and you feel and you come to understand that you're not alone. And so the people that you talk to and that you work with, and I've listened to some of them, um, it's great that you're doing that and opening that up. We're not alone. 
Yeah, I totally agree and appreciate those uh, kind words and feedback and our conversation today. And for everybody who are listening, with that, we'll wrap it up. And if you like what you heard, please share. Don't be shy. Thanks for listening to the Wisdom of Friends show with Carla Rass. If you enjoyed today's show, head over to wisdomoffriends.net to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover our fantastic bonus content. We hope you'll pass along our web address, wisdomoffriends.net, to your friends and colleagues. Be sure to check out our archives section on the website for previous episodes and subscribe on iTunes, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank, Thank you. you. This has been a 7 Symphony. Join us next time for another edition of The Wisdom of Friends.